0: Doing things together is what I mean. Welcome to The Usable Past. This is a town meeting that provides some context for the present. I'm Marie Nahikian. I've been a community organizer for 40 years. In 1970, I was the organizer of a national conference called, What's the Difference if We Don't Wake Up? It was a conference about the coming environmental crisis. The participants were all college newspaper editors from across the country, hundreds of them, that were a part of the U.S. Student Press Association. It was really, it turns out, one of the very first national... Environmental protests was a prelude to Earth Day, which happened about two months later in April. And the storied event included Liberation News Service reporters, led by Abby Hoffman, who climbed onto the dais where Robert O. Anderson, who was the CEO of Atlantic Richfield Oil was giving a speech. I was sitting next to him, had just introduced him, and they dumped a can of sludge oil over his head. I got a little splattered, did not know what to say, but Robert O. Anderson pulled out a white handkerchief, wiped the oil off his forehead, took off his suit jacket, hung it on the back of his chair, continued his speech at the dais, said thank you, and the hog farmers, led by Wavy Gravy of Woodstock fame, who were the security team for the conference, ushered him out. The Chicago 7 should have been 8, The defendants from the Chicago conspiracy trial that happened after the Chicago police riot at the Democratic National Convention in 1968 arrived. Bobby Seale wasn't with them. He was still in jail. The only um, person of color, the African-American defendant. Everything event-wise just seemed to spill over into everything else. It was a storied event. So today it's 2020, not 1970 or almost 2020. And we're facing a huge climate crisis. In the midst of people who are climate deniers, regardless of what the science says, there have been marches, there have been amazing floods uncontrollable fires, and temperature-wise, the hottest five years in our history. So the question becomes, what happened in 1970? What happened over the last 50 years? The usable past is hopefully, and I think, will give you some context for what's happening today.
1: Climate action went today, ho ho!
0: Floyd Norris was at that conference in 1970. Floyd is a longtime Brooklyn resident, and in 1970, he had left college where he had been the college newspaper editor at the University of California at Irvine, dropped out of college, and went to work for the college press service. Floyd was a financial columnist for the New York Times for over 20 years. Um, well-known on the business page. Welcome, Floyd Norris, and two first questions. What was your New York Times column called? What was the name of it? And then tell us what you remember first about that conference in 1970.
1: My column at the Times had various names as they went through phases. For a while it was just called Floyd Norris, which I kind of liked. What I remember was, I remember when um, Secretary Hickel, Wally Hickel, who was then Secretary of the Interior, had previously been governor of, our, uh, of Alaska, um, he spoke to this group, and that didn't, today that seems extraordinary. This was a group that was certain to be hostile to the Nixon administration in those days. Of course, the vast majority of them were against the war in Vietnam, um, and generally hostile to Nixon. Um, the only thing I remember from Hickel speaking is at some point somebody asked him about something the Nixon administration had done, and his response was, "We didn't do that; the White House did." And the distinction to me, I thought that was. A strange statement, because I saw no distinction between the two. But, of course, now I understand that the White House often orders departments around, and that probably is what happened in that case. Now, of course, it is inconceivable to me that the administration would send high-ranking officials to talk to such a group.
0: The Chicago uh, conspiracy defendants brought with them the yellow conspiracy and bullshit flags, that had been waived at, during their trial, and the college newspaper editors waved a sea of these yellow flags at Secretary of the Interior Walter Hickel. This was Richard Nixon's Secretary of the Interior, and of course it was Richard Nixon who created the EPA later in his administration. Mr. Hickel was also confronted by Hopi Indians as he was being escorted out. The elevator door started to close and the Hopi indigenous people were standing there and looked at him and he said, no, wait, I want to hear what they have to say. And they looked at the Secretary of the Interior, which controls the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and said, we want you to know that we're you know, dying.
1: Those were those were very unusual days. Although I don't think we understood it at the time in many ways. But at the time, you know, there was a and students of course were trying to change the world in those days. We'd been through the civil rights movement and then the anti the anti war movement was was quite strong at the time. Um, and getting stronger. The idea that that generation was going to change the world was a was a um, was one that many people hoped for and believed. Well, you know, I have to bring it
0: full circle and come forward. It's it's almost fifty years since nineteen seventy, and we have just seen an amazing um, group of very young people. Um, certainly younger than many of the college newspaper editors in 1970, demanding an end to the uh, extinction uh, crisis, to the climate crisis, and calling for climate strike. I mean, um, Greta Thunberg is, what, age 16? So...
1: And, and of course, and, and it's of course now being mocked uh, by our president. The reality is that it is very unlikely that you and I are going to see really bad climate change simply because of how old we are. Right. But the odds that, you know, someone like Greta, who is, you know, it'll, it'll be a few years before she's allowed to drink, um, The the odds that she'll see it. Are much much higher, and the complete lack of concern shown by much of the um, leadership of our society is, is shocking.
0: Well, and I guess I guess the leadership has kind of not. I mean, not only has they have they recently begun to reverse policy, but people I get asked all the time, "What did what happened for fifty years?" I mean, Earth Day started, this conference was a prelude to Earth Day, and Earth Day started in April of 1970, and so what happened in 50 years? Mercy, Mercy by Marvin Gaye, 1968, one of the, I guess, earliest, one of the very first uh, musical anthems focused on the environmental crisis. So now it's close to 2020, and a new environmental organization has taken root. Beginning first in November of 2018, the Extinction Rebellion, movement started with an aim and a goal of forcing the government to address climate change and biodiversity and the risk of social and ecological collapse by using nonviolent civil disobedience. The first action that Extinction Rebellion took was the blocking of five bridges in London in November of 2018. And in 2019, there has been a worldwide, a global series of actions in October of 2019, including here in New York City, all of which have used some form of civil disobedience and um, arrest as the movement has matured. Um, so has the resistance from the police and the police violence involved with Extension Rebellion. Here in New York City, Richard McLaughlin, who has become a climate change star, uh, climate talker, and he often demonstrates training a new generation of Subway Climate Preachers. Good
2: evening everybody. I don't want your money. But what I would like is a few moments of your
1: attention. This is not about me. This is about all of us here.
0: And in this case it's Nathaniel, a 16-year-old Brooklyn resident. I don't want your money. I just want your attention. My name is Nathaniel. I'm 16, and because of the climate crisis, my generation has little to no future. The polar ice caps are melting. Sea levels are rising. Every year, we come closer to massive food shortages. There are unprecedented fires in the Amazon and California. This last year, we produced more carbon emissions than any other year in history. Social collapse is more than a possibility. It's almost an inevitability. Our governments have failed us. I'm part of Extinction Rebellion, a global climate movement. Act now.
1: Here's what you can do.
0: Yeah. It's true. And and the other thing is, um, statements that attract people's attention, I'll just run through them for you, that, that I've really noticed. One is, as I said earlier, I don't want your money. And that's the first thing that makes people look up. The second thing in my case, and it's not the case in many of yours, most looking around. I'm an elderly man with five grandchildren. You see people pull out their earbuds and look up when they hear that.
2: Just kind of like go at it, right? Um, Because it is going to be very loud. The nuance is lost. And so you want to leave them with some punches.
0: So, Laurie Garrett, welcome. And I have, I have to start our conversation out by saying, okay, you live in Brooklyn, you don't own a car, you ride a bike everywhere, including, I know, this summer, at least once or twice to Far Rockaway. And you're a journalist, you're a writer, you're a scientist, you write about science, um, you've won a Pulitzer Prize, You wrote the earliest book about the Ebola crisis, but recently you took the time out as a a scientist and a writer to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. And you tweeted that um, there are hundreds of students walking across the Brooklyn Bridge to join Manhattan students and the climate change strike, and that when you looked at the one point five mile span of the Brooklyn Bridge, it was filled with children. Our planet! planet? Our, planet. planet? Our, planet. planet? Our planet! What did Our it feel planet. like to see these children walking across the Brooklyn Bridge?
2: <laughs> well, part of me, I have very mixed feelings about seeing the children marching and about Greta Thunberg and her statements to United Nations and various other places, um, my feelings are that I feel tremendous rage and shame that my generation has dumped this crap on them, and that my baby boomer generation, all full of peace, love, and harmony, let, let us all go back to the garden, we're the cool generation, everything turned to, into greed hogs, that shamelessly, without hesitation, bought SUVs that burn at eight miles to the gallon or 10 miles to the gallon of gasoline and and filled their homes with plastic and, you know, left these children with this extraordinary burden. We're leaving them a world that will be devastated. And I feel it's criminal. So while part of me feels joy to see the kids and their, uh, their idealism and their Uh, willingness to you know march their mile and a half or two miles however far they went Uh, that's great but it shouldn't be the case that they have to and we are culpable.
0: Absolutely and part of what we try to do is to figure out what did we do and what obviously there was a whole lot we didn't do Um, The comparison that I make is that, you know, the protests against the Vietnam War uh, in the early 70s and late 60s really began to die off at the point that there was no longer a draft because people no longer feared having to go to Vietnam. They no longer feared that they were going to have to go live in Canada or go to jail. So I wonder if part of Of the same thing is happening now with this extraordinary um, situation with the environment and climate and what's going on that
2: baby boomers know that it's probably not going to change our lives. I think the metaphor or the analogy or the simile, whatever is the correct way of looking at it, (laughs) um, is not the Vietnam War or the civil rights movement or any of the classic protest movements of the 60s and 70s. I really think it's nuclear war um, because that was an existential moment that we shared regardless of our politics. The whole planet was at risk of being fried to smithereens uh, if we had a thermonuclear exchange. And scientific studies that show that there's no such thing as a survivable nuclear war, right. and with the creation of physicians against nuclear weapons, which was jointly chaired by Soviet and American physicians. And that initiative won the Nobel Peace Prize. I think the, th- the, the parallel is very striking our generation grew up with duck and cover.
0: So you the, think that's the parallel yes. because that that fear kind of went away.
2: Well, I think as it's the a para- Cold war
0: well because we
2: denuclearized and most of the both American and Soviet stockpiles of nuclear weapons were dismantled. We still have a tremendous nuclear threat. Let's not forget it. forget it. And we have more nuclear powers today than we did when it was right. just the big two, but including um, North Korea. Including but, North Korea, it, it, we knew this wasn't a world that we wanted to live in, and it wasn't a world that we believed anybody could actually survive. Yeah. And by the time most of us were in college, um, you know, we we were listening to songs by folk singers and rock bands that mocked the whole idea. And of course, there was the famous Tom Lehrer song, let's drop the big one now, you know. Right. Boom goes China, boom Perry. More room for you, more room for me. Well, let's drop the big one, da 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 Well, you know, I think it was a sense of an existential moment, a moment where every child across the world shared the threat of obliteration. And I think today, That's what I see with the kids. So it's
0: another one of those moments.
2: It's another one of those existential moments where there's a kind of generational collective consciousness that, no, the adults are nuts. This is not survivable. We can't keep going this way. The difference between the existential uh, nuclear moment and awareness and the existential climate moment is that in the case of nuclear, we had a finite number of, of people to target our energy to. There are only about 200 human beings who could press buttons and make nuclear bombs go off. Eventually, one by one, most political leaders came to recognize there is no such thing as a survivable nuclear war. So now, there was
0: a finite target. A finite target.
2: Was. And it was, a, it was a finite number of human beings whose minds had to be changed. Right. And when you saw Ronald Reagan, of all people, say to Gorbachev, let's get rid of the nukes. You know, that was, that was a big deal. That was a jaw-dropper. That was a total game-changer. But today, it's a very different crisis because there is no one enemy. We are all the enemy. We are the
0: enemy. We have met the enemy, and he is us. He it's is the, us. It's the Pogo quote that I have to say was a part of the college editors' conference that we've talked about in 1970. Uh, we have met the enemy, and he is us.
2: And the problem is, what's going to stop this? Who do I yell at? What do I do? And I think it's a... I feel like we have dumped a burden on these kids that is just um, unconscionable and massive. And I struggle every day to come up with strategic ideas of interventions that we can all be doing that will make a difference. So some of what we've seen is...
0: um We've talked with people like um, the Extinction Rebellion, who have said the only solution at this point is uh, massive, nonviolent civil disobedience, stopping traffic on the street, lying on the Brooklyn Bridge, camping in at at Chuck Schumer's office because Schumer wouldn't sign on to the Green New Deal. Um, That's one direction. Uh, we have others that have said that you've got to target fossil fuel and the oil companies because the oil companies will continue to, um, you know, destroy the atmosphere and destroy the world with fracking and um, all that goes with the extraction of oil. So we've got people who are giving speeches and preaching on the subway, trying to do uh, conversion of people to take action. So let's face it, recycling your plastic at home is not going to be a big deal when, in the face of this,
2: right? Well, I think it's very interesting that we're at this moment where finally uh, the great mass of people around the planet are recognizing something's very, very wrong and that what is very, very wrong is very, very dangerous. And so Um, You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a school child in Tuvalu or Tonga or you're a a Ph.D. scientist at Los Alamos. You're all kind of looking around and saying, all right, that storm was not a normal storm and that flood was not a normal flood and this heat wave is not a normal heat wave, etc. So I think we're past the moment of any significant denial.
0: So are you going to the march today? Yep. How many are going to the march today? Everybody. Yeah. I think everyone wow. here is going to be at the march. And what do you hope happens? Well, I hope when people will see the protesters, they they start trying, it'll encourage more people to start trying to fix the, the bad things. Things like pollution and global warming. I think it, the protesters, the climate strike will encourage more people to take a stand and try to fix these
2: things. Who's in charge of making the changes? Yep. Um, sea levels are rising and so are us. We. Uh.